Seinfeld, the iconic show about nothing, faced sharp criticism for its controversial finale in 1998. Two primary reasons contributed to the negative reviews. Firstly, the audience was reluctant to see the beloved show come to an end. Secondly, co-creator Larry David's return after a three-year hiatus marked a significant shift in the show's tone. The finale, written entirely in David's voice, harkened back to the earlier seasons rather than adhering to the style fans had grown accustomed to. The episode revolves around the four main characters being placed on trial for failing to help someone in need. It skillfully weaves in nearly every infamous side figure from the series as character witnesses, showcasing the depravity of the foursome. The shocking conclusion, with the four friends behind bars, left audiences stunned. However, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, with their intimate understanding of the ensemble, knew all too well that these beloved figures were, at their core, hopelessly flawed and terrible people. Flawed characters make for significantly better stories. First of all, they're far more complex, and secondly, they more closely reflect the real world, as no one is perfect. It's often a character's mistake and their desire to fix things that drive stories forward. Our collective history serves as the inspiration for so many of our best tales. And because flawed, terrible people make for better stories, we have predictably enshrined flawed characters. Julius Caesar overthrew the Republic to create a dictatorship. Alexander the Great proceeded over tens of thousands of forced marriages after his soldiers had murdered his enemies' husbands. King Henry VIII took a literal stance on the marriage vow of till death do us part. But there are good guys in history, and some of them, like the East India Company's Warren Hastings, are surrounded by enough flawed individuals and stand the test of time. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the East India Company. Episode number five, What Could Have Been. We've talked about Warren Hastings in prior episodes. He arrived in India after his family benefactors lost the means to support him. Arriving on the subcontinent at the age of 19, he performed the duties of an EIC writer before eventually becoming attached to the Mughal royal court. Unlike the vast majority of the company, Hastings expressed a deep appreciation for the local culture and great disdain for the attitudes of his fellow Europeans and he reached the heights of leadership within the East India Company after the 1770 Bengal Famine brought the capitalist institution beneath the regulation of Parliament. Beneath his leadership, the EIC unified currency systems, codified Hindu and Islamic laws, reformed the tax system, fixed land revenue, stopped abusing local traders, created a postal service, began a much-needed geographical land survey, 
and built a series of public granaries in order to prevent future famines. His reputation was nearly spotless, a conclusion supported by contemporary indigenous writers who loved him for his care, as well as company men who detested him for doing things the right way. At one point, he journaled privately that in truth, I love India a little more than my own country. We oftentimes have a habit of tearing down the best that our society has to offer. On October 19, 1774, three men representing the British crown came to the shores of Calcutta to meet the EIC's new leading man. By the end of lunch, Hastings considered putting in his resignation letter. He had made the near-fatal mistake of not playing up the importance of the men sent halfway across the world to oversee his work. His blunder was in assuming that the men only cared that the company was doing things by the book. Instead, the three men were there to sate their own egos. The first strike against Hastings came when the men received merely a 17-gun salute, rather than the honorary 21. They also grumbled that there had been no guards to receive them or show them the way to their destination. Their first contact was a luncheon staged at Hastings' meager residence, where he remained dressed in informal attire. Philip Francis led the condemnation of the EIC director, referring to him as the most corrupt of villains. As for his surroundings, he claimed that Bengal is ruined and Mr. H has done it all. When another Crown representative wrote in favor of the man, Francis called him out as an ignorant, false, presumptuous blockhead. Francis favored the opinion that he was a, quote, king of the depraved peoples of Bengal, and Hastings could not overrule his demands. This resulted in a stalemate which paralyzed the governance of the area. Historian William Dalrymple writes that the result was a constant failure that now plagued every endeavor of the company. All business stood still, and the political paralysis in Bengal soon became clear to all the company's many enemies in India to test the strength. The subcontinent was still torn into multiple confederations. Shah Alam, an ineffective Mughal emperor, held the largest part, but remained a puppet of the EIC. The company ruled supreme in Bengal through its main staging ground of Calcutta. Shah Alam had courageously reclaimed Delhi in 1772, but was forced to fight through multiple skirmishes with the Rohillas in order to expand the Peacock Throne's meager influence. Hastings' unwillingness to pay any taxes to the throne artificially limited the size of the emperor's military, however, and meant that Alam could not hope to exert any influence against the EIC. He also wasn't the only ruler of a small kingdom on the subcontinent. A group referred to as the Marathas stretched from the northwest corner of the modern-day Republic of India to a section of the northeast, just above Shah Alam's territory. For the prior 70 years, they had held the title as the strongest native military power in India. They were a largely Hindu empire in contrast to Shah Alam's belief in Islam. Another section of the subcontinent was held by the Mysore Sultanate. 
which held on to the southwest portion of India. They were propped up by the French, who trained the Mysore troops and reinforced the defenses of their island stronghold. The gap between foreign and local military capabilities was quickly narrowing. Dalrymple informs us that for some time the directors had been growing alarmed at how Indian military techniques were rapidly improving across the region. The easy victory of the Plessy era, a decade earlier, were now increasingly eluding the company. It had taken Indian states some 30 years to catch up with the European innovations in military technology, tactics, and discipline that had led to the company's early success. But by the mid-1760s, there was growing evidence that the gap was fast being bridged. This was inevitable, as the Mughal Empire had shown off its ingenuity from the very beginning of contact with the Europeans. In that initial meeting, the EIC had bribed the emperor with a number of items, including a horse-drawn carriage. Within a week, the emperor's men had taken it apart, reverse-engineered it, and created a second coach so that the emperor's wife could have her own. The adage of it is better to be feared than loved doesn't work over long periods of time, as a feared father oftentimes doesn't have anyone by his side during his last days. In that sense, Hastings was a perfect ruler during this period of leveling between the continent's rival factions. But weakness invites challenges, and the director was soon facing multiple provocations. The first came from the Marathas, who delivered the EIC's first defeat since the victory at Plassey. That battle came in 1779 and resulted in the deaths of 350 company men. The resulting peace treaty even ceded territory to the Marathas. The victory lit a collective light bulb across the subcontinent. Soon the Mysore and Marathas were communicating an alliance against their joint enemy. This union of Hindus and Muslims banded together, noting that the supremacy of the English was a source of evil to all God's creatures. The combined forces marched against company territory in July of 1780, discovering that the overconfident English had made few defensive preparations. Panic ensued in Calcutta, and immediately fingers began pointing at each other. Two sides quickly coalesced behind Hastings and Francis. Instead of joining together in order to provide for the common defense, Francis took the crisis as an opportunity to challenge Hastings to a good old-fashioned duel. What unfolded next has to be the funniest duel in human history. I will rely heavily on the work of Dalrymple here. He tells us that Hastings hardly slept the night before. Evidently, the act of composing a farewell letter to his beloved wife was too much for him. The little sleep that he did get came around 4 a.m. on his friend's couch. Rather than a test of speed and reflexes, the rules dictated that both men take their time and choose when to fire. Hastings II writes of the duel that it was early on in the process when it became quite clear that neither of the two men knew how to operate a pistol. His assumption proved to be accurate, 
as it turns out that Hastings was the more experienced of the duelists, having vaguely remembered firing off a gun once a long time ago. The duelist seconds took care of loading the guns, and the two men took their assigned spots across from one another. The intent of dueling at this age wasn't to kill your opponent, but to injure them enough to gain what is always described as satisfaction. As such, the men agreed upon a doctor for the occasion. Hastings, ever the gentleman, graciously offered to let Francis take the first shot, which I can only imagine in a gun battle is a marked benefit. The Crown representative took a deep breath to calm himself, took all the time that he wanted to aim at his target, and squeeze the trigger. Fortunately for Hastings, the hammer snapped and the pistol misfired. Now at this point, I would likely laugh, take aim, and down my opponent. But as I mentioned, Hastings was ever the gentleman. He allowed Francis time to walk over to his second, put fresh priming into the pistol, and return to his spot. Incredibly, he then offered to again allow Francis to take the first shot, which he did. But incredibly, twice more the gun wouldn't fire. At this point, the Crown representative had run out of the material necessary to fix his gun, so Hastings dug into his own limited supply in order to give his opponent enough dry powder so that the man would be able to shoot him. This time, the two rivals agreed to go at the same time, with Hastings later writing that his pistol went off at the same time as mine. He staggered immediately and fell, saying, but not loudly, I am dead. I ran to him, seeing his coat pierced on the right side. It turns out that the wound wasn't serious, and the two men soon joined hands, which Hastings described as cheerful. Hastings apologized for shooting him, and the two went off to the doctor together to get Francis patched up. It wouldn't shock me if Hastings had offered to pay for all of the man's medical expenses. He even involved the law officials, and noted that he would happily surrender if it was deemed necessary. For once, it seems as though the nice guy had won. With their personal squabbling now behind them, the company mustered out two small armies in order to meet their opposition. One of their two forces was quickly surrounded, and formed up a hollow square three cores deep. An officer describes it for us, stating that we were quickly surrounded by the Maratha's horse. They were followed by his guns, which joined a kind of semicircle round us, the number of about 50 at least, which opened upon us by degree. The EIC's defensive tactics worked for a time, managing to repel 13 consecutive charges, but eventually the opposition brought forth their biggest guns and grape shot was soon mowing down company men by the hundreds. They miraculously held out for the better part of an hour before finally waving the white flag. But this wasn't a gentleman's duel and no quarter was given. One survivor informs us that those who were saved from immediate death were so crowded together that it was only with difficulty that they could stand. Several were in a state of suffocation. Some were trampled under the feet of elephants, camels, and horses, 
and those who were stripped of their clothing lay exposed to the scorching sun without water and died a lingering and miserable death, becoming the prey to ravenous wild animals. Incredibly, only 16 of the nearly 4,000 troops managed to escape the battle without a wound. In retrospect, the indigenous alliance should have capitalized on their victory and struck out at the wounded animal that was the EIC. But out of a desire to preserve their men's lives, the Marathas and Mysore paused. It was at this moment that Warren Hastings, the former writer-turned-director, managed to split the enemy at his doorstep. He approached the two groups separately, first making peace with the Marathas, who incredibly agreed to become a British ally for the time being. The Mysore, now facing down the remnants of the IC plus the Marathas, were subsequently forced to return home. Dalrymple notes, Had Haydar, the leader of the Mysore, pursued his success after the defeat of Bali, considering the shattered and dispirited state of the rest of the army, there could scarcely have been a hope of it not falling. For the company's enemies, it was a major missed opportunity. In 1780, one last small push could have expelled the company for good. Never again would such an opportunity present itself. In 1782, Shah Alam, the Mughal ruler, lost his greatest general, leading to the disintegration of the court into rival factions. Fighting erupted in the streets of Delhi. In 1784, facing the imminent loss of his throne again, Shah Alam sought help from outsiders. Surprisingly, he turned not to the East India Company, within whose territory he had spent six years, but instead to his northern neighbors, the Marathas. Having been invited within the walls of Delhi, the Marathas showed little regard for the safety and well-being of Shah Alam's people. While they restored order to the streets, they also began looting the royal palaces. Admits this chaos, the Rohillas seized the opportunity for revenge. Two thousand Afghan warriors appeared at the gate, swearing upon the Holy Quran that they only desired peace. Despite their assurances, Shah Alam sensed something was amiss. Although he authorized only twenty of the Afghan warriors for an audience, his head eunuch, old friends with the Rohillas' commander, allowed all of them through the gate. Shah Alam was subsequently imprisoned, while his son was elevated to emperor by the Rohillas, with the intention of coercing the Mughals into surrendering their supposed treasure. However, the harsh reality was that there wasn't much treasure left. The inability to collect tax dollars from the East India Company, coupled with the high costs of maintaining a standing military, had already depleted most of their wealth. Adding to this, the Marathas had been looting the kingdom when the Rohillas arrived, leaving little to hide. This explanation did not suffice for the Afghan conquerors. Convinced that a significant portion was being concealed, they resorted to brutal measures, murdering the loved ones of influential figures. Their focus eventually shifted to the 45-year-old emperor, subjecting him to seven consecutive days of starvation before blinding him. 
The book, A History of India as Told by Indian Historians, describes the scene in gruesome terms, noting that with his Afghan knife, the torturer first cut one of Shah Alam's eyes out of its socket. Then the other eye was wrenched out by that imprudent rascal. Shah Alam flapped on the ground like a chicken with his neck cut. Then the perpetrator called for a painter and said, Paint my likeness at once, sitting, knife in hand, upon the breast of Shah Alam, digging out his eyes. The warlord then went and personally slapped 20 of Shah Alam's children, chastising them for passively swallowing all of this. He boasted that he was testing them, and that if they had one little spark of manly honor in their heart, they would have grabbed his sword and dagger and been done with it. This grim scenario illustrated the instinctual response of fight or flight to a crisis, as several princes chose the latter hurling themselves over the palace ramparts. Those who survived the night endured starvation, while the princesses suffered repeated instances of sexual assault. At this pivotal moment in history, an intriguing scene unfolds, challenging our perception of the East India Company allowing us to finally imagine them as the good guys. Surprisingly, it was the Marathas, albeit momentarily aligned with the company, who rushed to the rescue of the beleaguered Mughals. Regrettably, their intervention came too late, as Delhi succumbed to a devastating explosion. The Rohillas, having already plundered the city for its treasure, went a step further, by amassing all of the garrison's available gunpowder. In a cruel turn of events, they tied up and abandoned the remnants of the royal family to perish in the aftermath of the explosive devastation. Justice was eventually meted out as the Marathas hunted down the Rohila's war leader. They displayed him in a cage for days, before proceeding to cut off his nose, tongue, and upper lip. Now deformed, he was again paraded around the city. On the next day, he had his eyes scooped out before he was led again on procession. On another, his hands were cut off and then his feet before finally his genitals. After each grisly step in the process, he was displayed alive to the people. Finally, his head was mercifully cut off before his body was then hung, neck downwards from a tree. The man's eyes were sent to Shah Alam as a gift. The now blind Mughal ruler was composing a poem at the time that he received them, one that the historical record has thankfully preserved. The translation reads like this. The winds of calamity have been unleashed by our mutilation. Our imperial rule has been cruelly laid waste. The exalted sun of kingship once illuminated the heavens. Now we lament the darkness of our ruin as dust descends upon us. That misbegotten son of an Afghan scattered our royal dignity. Who now except God could befriend us? We suckled the spawn of a serpent. We nurtured him but in the end he became our executioner. Rife with danger are the riches and honors of this world, 
Now fate has rendered our sufferings eternal. Now that this young Afghan has destroyed the dignity of my state, I see none but thee, Most High. Lord, have pity on me, a sinner. Where was Warren Hastings, who had previously professed a deep appreciation for the culture nurtured by the Mughal Empire? Why did he not come to the aid of a man his company had pledged to reinstate to the throne? As fate would have it, Hastings found himself in London amidst his own impeachment hearing. The trial became the talk of England, with tickets being traded on the streets as if they were coveted passes to the Super Bowl. Even Queen Charlotte attended, occupying her specially designed royal box. Hastings stood in direct opposition to Philip Francis, a man to whom he had shown repeated kindness during their duel. Following the indignity of being the sole participant shot, Francis promptly resigned from the EIC board and made his way back to London. There he depleted the Indian wealth he had amassed in order to secure a seat in Parliament, leveraging his newfound power to extensively lobby for Hastings' downfall. Francis found other men of the Parliament who had been wronged by the EIC, and fabricated evidence where needed in order to bring about the impeachment hearing. Edmund Burke led the prosecution. Before he had met Francis, Burke had publicly identified himself as a great admirer of Hastings. Shortly after he made that statement, however, a large portion of his family had been economically ruined due to speculation regarding company stock. 22 charges were brought against the EIC director, and the individual performances during the proceedings did not disappoint to delight the masses which assembled over the course of the multi-week trial. That was partly by design, as they chose a noted playwright to serve on the prosecutorial team. The language used to describe the charges was designed to shock those in attendance as Burke stated that Hastings reportedly operated with various instances of extortion and other deeds of maladministration, with impoverishing and depopulating the whole country, with a wanton and unjust and pernicious exercise of his powers in overturning the ancient establishments of the country, with cruelties unheard of and devastations almost without name, crimes which have their rise in the wicked dispositions of men, in avarice, rapacity, pride, cruelty, malignity, haughtiness, insolence, ferocity, treachery, cruelty, malignity of temper, in short, nothing that does not argue a total extinction of all moral principle, that does not manifest a blackness of heart, a heart blackened to the very blackest, a heart corrupted, gangrened to the core. We have brought before you the head, the captain general of inequality, one in whom all the frauds, all the violence, all the tyranny in India are embodied. For four days, Edmund Burke held sway, delivering his opening arguments during which he dehumanized Hastings to the level of a rat and a weasel. 
he threw out baseless accusations, labeling Hastings as a robber, oppressor, and extortionist. He claimed that the nature of the East India Company did not allow them to have the same latitude as a nation, suggesting that they illegitimately did what the Mongols, Vandals, and Normans had done legitimately. For his climax, he stated, I impeach, therefore, Warren Hastings, Esquire of High Crimes and Misdemeanors. I impeach him in the name of the Commons of Great Britain in Parliament assembled, whose parliamentary trust he has betrayed. I impeach him in the name of the people of India, whose laws, rights, and liberties he had subverted, whose properties he has destroyed, whose country he has laid waste. I impeach him in the name and by virtue of those eternal laws of justice which he has violated. I impeach him in the name of human nature itself, which he has cruelly outraged, injured, and oppressed in both sexes, in every age, rank, situation, and condition of life. Burke was right about a number of the crimes perpetrated against India, particularly the statement that every rupee of profit made by an Englishman is lost to India forever. But he was targeting the wrong man. While Hastings was no angel, he was easily one of the best men to have ever led the EIC. When someone doesn't have the facts on their side, they oftentimes have to rely on theatrics, which is what the playwright-turned-prosecutor Richard Sheridan did when it was his turn to speak. At the culmination of his speech, he swooned backwards, landing in a pre-orchestrated move into Burke's arms. Finally, it was the defense's chance to respond, and over the course of weeks, they corrected the historical record, including an absurd accusation that he had illegally helped a pirate who had died 400 years earlier. Those facts won out over theatrics, and on April 23, 1795, Warren Hastings was cleared of all 22 charges. While actual imprisonment eluded him, the unfounded yet vehement accusations against Hastings cast a long shadow over his life, plunging him into a lasting state of depression. Given the East India Company's status as a publicly traded entity, the scandalous nature of the charges necessitated his removal as the chairman of the board. Stepping into his shoes was a man of unwavering integrity, eager for an opportunity to redeem his own reputation. Enter General Lord Charles Cornwallis, recently bruised by his defeat to the American colonists, who promptly packed his belongings and set sail for India. Dalrymple observes that Cornwallis's mission now was to ensure that a similar fate would never befall India. The introduction of cash crops such as sugar, opium, and indigo marked a turning point for the company's financial stability. Positive trade dividends empowered them to strengthen their military, enticing the recruitment of top indigenous warriors through significantly higher wages. However, as fortunes tend to ebb and flow, 
a figure named Tipu ascended to the contentious Mysore throne. His father's parting advice to him highlighted the East India Company's resurging influence, prompting him to weaken them with war. Tipu had the chance to etch his name in the annals of subcontinental history as a great leader. Already renowned for his victories against the EIC, he imported silkworms from China to establish a vibrant industry that endures to this day. Implementing advanced infrastructure, he introduced irrigation, constructed dams, established a library, and founded factories, mirroring the methods and efficiency of the EIC. Despite his devotion to Islam, a universalizing faith, Tipu diligently safeguarded the Hindus residing in his realm, even going as far as rebuilding temples dedicated to powerful Hindu deities. Unfortunately, he lacked the necessary diplomatic skills for the moment. His assaults into the Marathas' territory, the former allies of his father, resulted in that civilization and Shah Alam's people joining Cornwallis in an unstoppable triple alliance. What came was the Third Anglo-Mysore War. Cornwallis pushed his forces right up to the Mysore capital an island fortress surrounded by rivers. His advance was stopped first by an outbreak of smallpox, before then being drenched by monsoon rains. Two months later, the rested forces returned and made a daring midnight assault that caught the city by surprise. Cornwallis's action gained them the rivers, allowing them to settle in for a siege. Realizing that it was cornered, Tipu negotiated to save his life. The cost was steep, as he was forced to surrender half of his kingdom to the East India Company, as well as paying them 30 million rupees for the suffering that he had caused. That is nearly $400 million in terms of today's exchange rate. Furthermore, he had to hand over his two eldest sons as hostages of the EIC in order to ensure that he made the full payment. Two years later, the boys were returned unharmed upon completion of the reparations. But even in defeat, Tipu was scheming, informing the EIC's Indian allies that he was not their enemy. That position belonged only to the English. With peace restored, Cornwallis aimed to safeguard it. He brought with him all kinds of unfortunate notions from his experiences in America. There, Britain had lost its colonies to the descendants of European settlers. The indigenous population of Native Americans hadn't arisen against them during the Revolution. Seeking to ensure that no such European settler class emerged, he oversaw legislation that excluded the children of British men with Indian wives from employment with the East India Company they would have to seek a livelihood that produced wealth somewhere other than India. They were later banned from owning land. This had huge ramifications for the more than one-third of the company that was cohabitating with locals. Soon, their children began a precipitous slide down the social ladder. Harsh land taxes were drawn up that allowed the company to seize the property if payment wasn't made. They then turned around to sell that land to the highest bidder. 
Although Cornwallis had been trained as a soldier, he fully understood the ins and outs that make up the economic theory of capitalism. It was during this time of social upheaval that a powerful class of Hindus emerged within the territory of Calcutta. This consistent influx of funds positioned the company as the premier customer for indigenous financiers in India. Their solid reputation for timely debt payments earned them the status of the safest investment in the country, mirroring the British people's perception of the East India Company's stock. The company's financial stability allowed them to remain a bystander as the Marathas' confederacy fell apart. They soon stood alone atop the pyramid of the subcontinent. Shah Alam's Mughal Empire was content for the moment. While the Mysore had been taught a harsh lesson about the power of the East India Company, the only group that could possibly pose a threat to the company's rule were the Marathas. But their internal cohesiveness was described by some as akin to a bag of ferrets. There was only one threat to their rule remaining, one that followed them from the European mainland. Lord Cornwallis didn't know it yet, but Napoleon was coming his way. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.